Hello, everyone. I was thinking when I was worshiping just a few minutes ago how it's very easy to become mechanical in our devotion to Christ. All these good things that we do, like read the Bible, worship, uh, watch a service online, listen to a sermon, uh, pray, all these different kinds of things that we we can do, even giving, can become mechanical. And I just was thinking how much I don't want it to become mechanical. I want it to be fresh. I want our devotion to Christ to be just from the heart. And so I just want to take a couple moments right now because I don't want you to just listen to another sermon today. I want you to really hear the voice of God. And so I just want to take a moment. I want to let you guys pray and just ask the Lord to um, do something fresh in your heart. Lord, you are worthy. You are so worthy, so worth our everything. Lord, you are good, you are kind, you are holy. You made us, you created us, you put breath in us. Lord, even the fact that we can just be alive today to worship you, Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, you are such a perfect God, altogether beautiful. There's no flaw in you. Lord, you are worthy. You've given your life for us. And Lord, I pray that even on this day, God, that everything that we do would be honoring to you. We pray that the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Every song that we sing Lord, every little act that we do, everything, Lord, I pray, would be honoring to you. Lord, nothing would make us more happy than being able to, in some small way, make you happy. Lord, we pray that you would take joy in everything that we, we do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I'm just going to get a drink of water. I'll be right back.
All right. <laughs> oh, good. All right, today's topic is one of my all-time favorites to preach on. It's one I've preached on many, many times through the years. Uh, I don't know of any other truth that gives me more joy than the truth of Christ's great love for us as his church. The truth is especially sweet when we consider what we were at one time. Now, I realize that some of us in the Wren community were uh, saved very young, maybe five years old or six or seven. And so you weren't especially uh, great sinners, you know, when you were three or four. Maybe some of you were, I'm not sure. But whether we were saved at five or 25 or 55, the fact is that apart from the grace of God, we would be lost. Who knows what some of us would, would be up to right now, hungover. Maybe we'd be out on the streets without shelter. Maybe we'd be dead. Maybe we'd be in prison. Maybe we would just be a hardened atheist with no sense of God's presence in our life. Where would we be without, without the grace of God? Well, we'd be, we know from Scripture, we'd be at enmity with God. We wouldn't be the friends of God. We would be guilty sinners with a sentence of hell hanging over us. We'd be without hope and without God in the world. We'd be dead in our sins. Of course, these are all phrases from the book of Ephesians that we've explored in previous chapters. But by grace, by grace, we were drawn out of that pitiful condition and we were placed in God's family. And if you're a Christian this morning, you are loved and you are in the family of God. We are sons and daughters of the Lord. Apostle Peter puts it this way, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise God. Well, those who are regenerated, born of the Spirit, in Christ, uh, we are the church. And again, like I said, I think last week when I say church, I don't just mean the local church, Renaissance church, but the church, big C, the universal church. The church, this Global family of God is a kaleidoscope of peoples. Every tribe, every nation, young and old, rich and poor, educated and not educated, we are the church. We're one big, beautiful family spread throughout the globe and 
spanning throughout 20 centuries. I think of John's vision of the church in eternity described in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's been a number of songs written around that portion of Scripture. It's so beautiful. But we are the church now, and we will be the church then and forever, this great family of God. Well, as I mentioned in my description, if you read it this morning, for this message, we're looking at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And we looked at this last week, um, but we looked at just the relationship between a husband and a wife. So this week, we want to look at or focus on the relationship between Christ and the church, uh, specifically Christ's great love for the church, his devotion to the church. There are seven aspects of Christ's devotion that I want to highlight. Here's the first. Christ loved the church. You can find that phrase in the text. I'm not going to read the whole text like I usually do because it's so long, but I'm just going to pull out different phrases and sentences from, from the portion in Ephesians. And one of those phrases is Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church. Love is a wimpy word, I think, in our language. We love everything. You know, we love food. We love, I don't know, we love sports. We love the sunshine. We love our iPhones. But Christ loves the church in this kind of love that is like nothing that we can even imagine. This may sound basic to us, but I really want us to think about this deeply. A Christian man, if he is a good Christian, Christian husband, loves all of the women in his church. Maybe that sounds shocking, but he should. He, in fact, loves all the women in his city and the world. He even loves the women who don't like him. But his love for his wife is different. He has chosen to love his wife more than all the other women on the planet put together. He has chosen to set his affection on this one. This is so easy to preach right now because my wife is behind the camera. <laughs> this singular affection is how Christ loves his church, his bride. We are his special possession, his treasure, the love of an earthly husband cannot compare, of course, to Christ's love for his church. The love of God burns like an eternal flame. How can we grasp this? I mean, I was thinking maybe of like, what was the moment in your life that you perhaps felt the most love for another person? Maybe it was 
the time that you were standing at an altar and you were crying and you were just looking at your, your bride. Maybe it was the time that you held your newborn baby. Uh, what is that moment? Maybe it was the love from a mother or a dad or a close friend. Take that, that feeling of just swelling love inside and, and, and just multiply it by infinity. And it's, we can't even fathom the, the fierceness, the fury, the passion of God's love. It's blazing and constant like a sun, like 10,000 suns. And words just can't cut it, honestly. I, I just want to be honest. I really, really struggled with this for a long time. And I think I still do struggle with this. To understand the love of God, we get the information in the Bible, right? Tells us much about the love of God. And there's so many beautiful uh, verses in the Bible that talk about God's love for us. But I know for, for years, it's just, okay, I you know memorized the verses and I got it. I know what it says. I understand with the hearing of the ear, right? Like Job said, but I just wasn't getting it. I just couldn't grasp it. I couldn't comprehend it. And I just kept on asking God. I felt bad, like, Lord, okay, I know you love me, but it's like great love, but I don't know, I'm not feeling it. What does that mean? I don't really understand. I don't even know what to compare it to. It's sort of like something that is beyond what we've experienced. And I just kept asking, God, could you just like really show me what this means? I, like, I need to feel it. And he, uh, I think he loves that prayer. He loves when we hunger and thirst for his love. It's really uh, similar to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 for the church, that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the greatness and the vastness of the love of God, that we would sort of by the Holy Spirit comprehend the great love that God has for us. It's a spiritual illumination. It's a work of God sort of unveiling it to us, not as a piece of information, but as revelation, very different. And God has his ways of making his love known to us. And by far, those have been the most beautiful moments of my entire life when God has just somehow made me know his incredible burning love for me. And what can you do but just, uh, just cry, just weep, and just feel it, and just let it happen, and just let it wash over you. And you just can't even believe that this kind of love exists in the center of the universe, in the God that you serve. It's just like nothing we can imagine. I want more of that, even as I think about it. That's why we always pray, Lord, show me your glory. I mean, really, that's what we're praying. Lord, show, show me your goodness. Show me your love. Reveal who you are to me. Uh, reveal your love for me. So pray, pray that prayer. Well, there's so much more I could say about that. But the second thing I, I see in this, in this portion of Scripture about Christ's devotion for us is that he gives of himself. 
He gives of himself. Here's the, the text I want to use. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love for his church isn't all just feeling, you know, up in the divine heart. He just feels really like sappy and, and full of love for us. He actually does something, as someone once said, love is a verb, you know. He, he puts it into action. He demonstrated his love for us, Romans 5 says, in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He gave himself up for us. What does that mean? Well, in eternity past, a decision was made. The Trinity decided to make humans in the image of God. The Lord knew that mankind would fall into sin and need to be redeemed. He knew that. It was not a shock to him. When Adam and Eve sinned and when the creation fell into its shadow, he knew that the only suitable redeemer would be God himself. Not an angel, not a, some seraph, seraphim or cherub or whatever, that none of his created beings would be sufficient to redeem the world. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Son of God agreed to give himself up to death on a cross to pay the price for our sin. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And guess what? He did not waver in the decision made in eternity past. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, says in Galatians 4. Christ appeared in human form. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became obedient even to death on a cross for the joy set before him. This joy of sharing his eternal kingdom with a people. He endured the cross. And he endured great hostility from sinners against himself. He was despised and rejected. Mocked. Beaten. Misunderstood. Publicly dragged through great crowds. In humiliation. And finally, nailed to a tree. And why did he do this? Well, he gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 1 verse 4. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Isaiah 53 says it beautifully. He was pierced for our transgressions. He did this for us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So much more to be said of Christ giving himself. 
But let's look at this third element of his devotion to us. The text says that he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. One of the most dangerous false doctrines is the idea that Christ just loves us exactly like we are. The idea is not biblical at all. Yes, Christ, of course, loves us in whatever condition we're in, but he's not like a passive parent that just accepts the behavior of his children no matter what they do. Not at all. Christ wants to change us into his likeness. He wants to put his love in us. He wants his character to be in us. He wants us to reflect who he is. He washes us through the word of God. His word searches and exposes us. He purges us with holy fire. He chastises us. Hebrews 12 if need be, to form us into the image of the Son. He's making us like Jesus. And he's getting us ready for eternity. In a sense, getting us ready for this wedding day when we will be joined with Christ and so be with him forever. He doesn't want us showing up at heaven's gates unprepared. He doesn't want his bride, the church, to show up on wedding day with dirty and torn clothes. We're being dressed by God without spot or wrinkle for that day that we meet him. He wants his church to be purified by fire, beautified through trials and sanctified through the word that he might present us to himself in splendor. Radiant reflections of Jesus. So Christ, he he loves us too much to accept us as we are. I'm thankful he doesn't lay the burden on us to be holy in our own strength. Thank God. But he himself rolls up his sleeves and daily works through the Holy Spirit. And he works his righteousness into us. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Consider this verse of Paul at the end of his first letter to the Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's not passive in his work of getting us 
ready if you haven't noticed that. If maybe you're a new Christian, you're, you just think that the Lord, you know, saved you and brought you into the family and, you know, he's, he would like you to be like him, but, you know, he's not that worried about it because, you know, the, the, the main thing is he just wants you to go to heaven. Well, you find that as you walk with the Lord, he is very, very passionate about us becoming like him. And he does everything to work that into us. Ask the person who is trying to be nominal or trying to drift or fall back into sin. Any true Christian that has a spirit of God inside of him or her. God himself will chastise. He will discipline. He does the work. He brings us to where we need to be. There's so much more we could say about this, but he initiates this work of sanctification. He sets it in motion. He is the guide. He brings it to completion. It is going to happen one way or another in every true believer. And so we would be wise to say, Lord, uh, bring me the easy way. <laughs> um, just do, do your work, Lord. Just may I be pliable. May I not be like the mule that is, needs bit and bridle to get it to do what it needs to do. But may we just be surrendered. May we be easy to lead, easy to sanctify for the Lord. Well, let's look at another point. These are nice, these next two. Now we come to a couple of the sweet elements of Christ's devotion to us as his church. I'll read the, the text. It says, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So I want to look at these two words, nourish, nourishes and cherishes. This is what Christ does. Uh, so first, let's consider this idea of nourishing. The illustration is the body, right? And the way we nourish, kind of care for our bodies. Uh, the illustration isn't perfect. Like every illustration breaks down at some point because sometimes we don't take care of our bodies as we should, right? But because our bodies are part of us, if we're in our right mind, at least, we feed them when they are hungry. When they feel pain, we tend to notice. We pay attention. We do whatever we possibly can to alleviate the pain. My wife burned her hand yesterday on um, the iron and she really had a lot of pain. You know, her whole focus was, of course, on that pain that she was, she was feeling. I don't think she could tune that out. It's just part of who she is. I, I had a sliver under my skin this week. My whole thumb was throbbing. It was like, that's all I could think about. My whole focus was on my thumb. Why? Because my thumb, it's part of me. I can't just like, you know what? I'm not going to think about the thumb today. I'm just going to, I mean, I can't take it off and throw it away. I can't put it away for a few weeks and then pull it back. It just, it doesn't, it's part of me. 
And that's the point of this illustration. The pain or discomfort or hunger or thirst that my body feels is something I cannot help caring about. And the glorious truth here is that we are the body of Christ. In the same way, we cannot separate ourselves from being concerned about our bodies. Even if we tried, Christ is concerned with his body, the church. He nourishes us and tends to us. He gives us his word. He feeds us. If we are injured, if we are bleeding, he nourishes our spirit. He provides everything we need to flourish. And then this word cherishes. Christ cherishes his church. Is just incomprehensibly beautiful. As you know, that's part of the wedding vow, right? To love and to cherish, which I said the wrong way in my vows. I said, I was so nervous. I said, to love and cherish. Sounded like it was drunk or something. And then my wife's little sister started laughing at me. But uh, that was a long time ago. But cherish. What a word. Jesus cherishes his church. Cherish means to hold dear, to feel or show affection for. A synonym synonym could be to treasure. It means Christ doesn't hold his church as one of 31,000 hobbies or interests that he has. We aren't just one of Christ's many uh, pet projects or something he's into for a season, but then he moves on. It's not like that. You have to understand. This is just, it's mind-blowing. It, it, Christ has chosen us to be his people forever. Just let that sink in. We are the object of his burning affection, the apple of his eye. Again, just like a husband forsakes all others and chooses to cherish the one woman, so Christ has set his affection upon his bride, the church, us. We aren't a thing that Christ is in, into for a thousand years of eternity, but then moves on to more exciting things. No, it's so hard to fathom. I mean, it's hard not to feel just unworthy when you really take it in. But the visions of eternity and the new city show the, the church and Christ married forever. Christ doesn't set us up with big mansions, you know, in the new city and then take off. He dwells with us. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us he is the light that illuminates everything in the new city where we're going to live. There is no need for churches to go into the church and pray to God, to Jesus, because the Lord God himself is the temple. We will be his cherished people. 
and he will be our cherished God forever. Hear Paul's words as he anticipates the future. There's a lot that Scripture says. I'm just giving you one verse here. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. Paul says this, thinking about this future day. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But this is the verse I want you to think, think about. The next verse says, And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Okay, two more aspects of Christ's devotion to his church. The next one is holds fast. Jesus holds us fast. Here's the text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Paul says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I think this camera just went off. Did it? Keep going? All right. Should I look over here? Okay. It's still going? All right. I heard a click. <laughs> so this profound mystery that Paul is expressing here is that Christ will hold fast to his church and never let us go. This is a beautiful doctrine that is sometimes lost by poor teaching. So many Christians live in fear of losing their salvation or that God is going to change their mind. I mean, it's actually kind of sensible because a lot of us have lived, how many have known someone? It could have been even a parent. It could have been somebody you were in a romantic relationship with or a really close friend or someone you really thought was like with you. And for whatever reason, they just decided to abandon, and take off. I mean, this is the world we live in. People are fickle, but God is not fickle. When he makes a commitment to us, he sticks with it. We don't need to worry. You know, that if Jesus came and we were saying something dumb or we were like oversleeping and we were supposed to be at church, that, you know, that's it. He's done with us. You know, he just, okay, I'm, that's the last straw. I'm sick of you. No, that, we're not going to get left behind. He's totally, absolutely committed to holding us fast. Christ has us in his tight grip and will not let us go. No one will snatch us from his hands. If Christ himself, think about this, holds us fast by his own grip. Think about that. Some of you, when you, were, when you were little kids, maybe, you know, and, uh, and your dad would, would take something of, you know, like maybe for me, maybe it was like a Hot Wheels car, and he would just put it in the script just to kind of play with me. And, and just, there was no way I was going to, you know, as a little four-year-old, five-year-old, just ungrip that 
car from my dad's hand. Listen, God has you in his grip and nobody is going to pry his hand open. I mean, that's what Paul was saying in Romans 8, right? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation that's pretty exhaustive will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about that. It means no demon, no devil, no army, no enemy, no trial, no temptation, no sin, no failure, no success, no bad day, no bad year, no pandemic, no doubt, no fear. Nothing will separate the church from Christ. Which brings me to the last point, that we are one. Jesus makes us one. Here's the text. The two shall become one flesh. And again, he says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying here that the two, Christ and the church, shall become one. This echoes the teaching of Jesus in John 17. Let me read a few verses from John 17. Jesus said, I do not ask, he's praying, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's, that's us, the church, the future church. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. That's one of those portions you should read like a hundred times until it begins to sink in. We can't go too deep on this, this great mystery, but I just want to proclaim that we as the church are one with Christ. How exactly are we one? I don't think we will fully understand until we get into eternity. We do know that in the next life, we will have glorified bodies. This is a mystery, right? As what kind of body is it going to be? But it may be that our oneness with God is even physical. Not that we become God, but perhaps the way an unborn child is tethered to the mom and receives direct nourishment. Our oneness may be such that God is present in our minds and communing with us every moment. It could mean that his creative energies are streaming through us all the time. It will be in perfect harmony of thought and purpose. There will be a profound entwining with his joy. We just, we don't, we don't get it. We just, we don't understand. It's just the people's, throughout history, people's ideas of heaven, or just, we're going to be in this paradise with mansions, and it's not, it's, it's not what heaven is going to be about. Yeah, there's going to be 
gold streets and different things. It's, it's, it's about Christ. He is heaven and we our oneness with him is going to be that's going to be what makes heaven heaven it's been asked why did god even make humans if god within the trinity was perfectly satisfied and in need of nothing then why create man well the answer is love he did it to share the riches and the wonders of his eternal kingdom with a special, treasured people of his own possession. And we are that people. Amen. Thanks for listening.